Okay, so we are going to be in Judges 9, and we're going to try to get through 21 verses in our time together tonight. So, <clears throat> um, And so I'm just going to start reading in verse 1 of Judges chapter 9. It says, Now Abimelech, the son of Jerubbabel, went to Shechem, to his mother's relatives, and said to them, and to the whole clan of his mother's family, Say in the ears of all the, el- of all the leaders of Shechem, which is better for you, that all seventy of the sons of Jerubbabel rule over you, or that one rule over you? Remember also that I am your bone and your flesh. And his mother's relatives spoke all these words on his behalf in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem. And their hearts inclined to follow Abimelech, for they said, He is our brother. And they gave him 70 pieces of silver out of the house of Baal-berith, with which Abimelech hired worthless and reckless fellows who followed him. And he went to his father's house at Ophrah and killed his brothers, the sons of Berubabal, 70 men on one stone. But Jotham, the youngest of Jerubabal, was left, for he hid himself. And all the leaders of Shechem came together, and all of Beth Milo. And they went and made Abimelech king by the oak of the pillar at Shechem. And when it was told to Jotham, he went and stood up on top of Mount Gerizim and cried aloud and said to them, Listen to me, you leaders of Shechem, that God may listen to you. The trees were once out to anoint a king over them. And they said to the olive tree, Reign over us. But the olive tree told them, Shall I leave my abundance by which gods and men are honored and go hold sway over the trees? And the tree said to the fig tree, You, come and reign over us. But the fig tree said to them, Shall I leave my sweetness and my good fruit, and go hold sway over the trees? And the trees said to the vine, You, come and reign over us. But the vine said to them, Shall I leave my wine that cheers God and men, and hold sway over the trees? Then all of the trees said to the bramble, You, come and reign over us. And the bramble said to the trees, If in good faith you are anointing me king over you, Then come and take refuge in my shade. But if not, let fire come out of the bramble and devour the cedars of Lebanon. Now therefore, if you have acted in good faith and integrity when you made Abimelech king, and if you have dealt well with Jerubbabel and his house and have done to him as his deeds deserved, for my father fought for you and risked his life and delivered you from the hand of Midian, and you have risen up against my father's house this day and have killed 70 sons, 70 men on one stone, and have made Abimelech the son of his female servant, king over the leaders of Shechem, because he is your relative. If you then have acted in good faith and integrity with Jerubbabel and with his house this day, then rejoice in Abimelech, and let him also rejoice in you. But if not, let fire come out from Abimelech, and devour the leaders of Shechem at Beth Milo, and let fire come out from the leaders of Shechem and from Beth Milo, and devour Abimelech. And Jotham ran away and fled, and went to Beer, and lived there because of Abimelech, his brother. So these verses, I believe that is, uh, yeah, to verse 21. These verses are what we're going to try to unpack tonight. Uh, I think that actually really ver- chapter 9 is, is best uh, learned and, and understood as one large unit. So all the way through to the end of verse 57 is really the, the full arc of the story. So really we're just going to be doing part 1 uh, this week. Um, It is probably wise to not try to read 55 verses in one sitting and then go from there, although I was tempted to do that. So um, 
But the title of our study tonight, at least this first part, is called The Noble Bush. Uh, And this has reference to that parable that is told by Jotham, who is the surviving son of Gideon. So a few things to point out about this text before we get into it. One is that the introduction to these verses, the thing that best introduces this context to us, is actually the conclusion of chapter 8. So verse 33 through 35 is the conclusion of chapter 8. And remember what it says. It says, as soon as Gideon died, the, Isra- the people of Israel turned again and whored after the Baals and made Baal Berith their god. And then it says, and the people did not remember the Lord their God who had delivered them from the hand of the enemies on every side. And they did not show steadfast love to Jerubabel. And in return for all the good that he had done for Israel. And so the, the question we could be asking as readers is, well, how do we know that they didn't show respect or they didn't show love towards Gideon? Uh, well, this episode explains to us all, that's, all that that uh, entails. Namely, they kill almost all of his offspring. And the one offspring that they don't kill, they institute as a leader. And he is most likely the least qualified person we've met in Judges thus far to lead anybody. And so as we get into the text tonight, that is uh, that, that head statement in verse 35, that they don't show steadfast love to Gideon, is really unpacked here for us. So this episode is going to introduce some recurring themes that we've seen so far in Judges already. Number one, you're going to notice the, the, what happens to the people as they forget God. As they abandon God, what happens to them in their decision-making process. The second thing, which is a theme that we've talked about a few times, is that the leadership in Judges has this very, uh, very downhill quality to it from this point forward. And that's going to accelerate. But this is really a strong shift. This is the first leader we've met who doesn't have a positive episode before they have a downfall. This is a leader who starts off with a downfall and just kind of continues on that track. And then the third thing you're going to notice, and this is evident now in the book of Judges, but it's something that in the first two or three chapters was kind of a novelty, which is that the people of Israel have completely at this point abandoned their commission to possess the promised land. So something, remember in chapter one, they're still kind of carrying on that mission. And then uh, by the end of chapter one, they settle and they stop doing that. And at this point, we're in chapter nine, and there's been no mention at all of the people of Israelite, uh, people of Israel really pressing in and pushing out these people anymore. Essentially, at this point, that completion of their mission is off the table, and they're just kind of fighting for survival, even in their own ranks. And that's what leads to a lot of this infighting, because they've abandoned their mission. They have nothing to do. And so that's what leads to all this kind of terrible decision-making. And there's going to be some, some interesting application there for us. So keep that in mind as we, as we work through these verses. So the first uh, thing I want you to, to notice here is the proposition from uh, this son, Abimelech, to the people of Shechem. He says to the leaders, he goes to them, knowing that he has all these brothers and knowing that they now need another leader because Gideon has passed away. He says, which is better, that all 70 sons of Jerubbabel rule over you or that only one of them rule over you? So that's in verse 2. And that's not necessarily a complex proposition, but there is a lot of questions to be asked in there, which is, well, who's to say which of the sons is the, is the most fitting one to rule? It's, it's one thing to say we have consensus that 70 people shouldn't be kings, but it's another thing to say that then Abimelech rises to the top and he should be the king. And so his, his claim to fame, the thing that he thinks sets him apart, is the fact that he is related to the men of Shechem. And so that's something that he's going to put to them and he's going to say, look, I'm, I'm from your town. I'm related to you. That's my essentially uh, qualification. And so because of this, you should institute me as king. And that seems like a very low bar, a very low standard. But 
people do this all the time when they're trying to go for leadership positions. Politicians do it all the time. They'll say, oh, I grew up in this neighborhood and so I should be the one who, who rules over this neighborhood. Or I grew up here in a like circumstance, therefore I'm qualified to lead or to pass laws or legislation. Um, people do this all the time. And what you're gonna see is it's a very low bar and a very bad criteria for somebody to go into leadership. In this case, the, the people of Shechem buy into this idea. They say, well, he is related to us, and so that must mean he's gonna have our best interest in mind. He's going to represent us well, he's going to uh, lead us well, and he's going to do so uh, benevolently. And so what they do, because they know that there's all these other sons, is they conspire together to essentially do away with the competition so that there's going to be only one person who could possibly take the throne under the legacy of Gideon. And so Abimelech is going to do two things. One, he's gonna eliminate all the competition, and two, he's going to get his claim to fame by relation to the people of Shechem and relationship to, uh, to Gideon, which would be um, essentially the only thing that he has going for him is Gideon's reputation as a, as a leader. So Abimelech's riding Gideon's coattails and he's also related to the, she the people from Shechem. And so he does this, he, he gets them together, he gets them to essentially hire him an army and the army is described in very flattering terms as both worthless and reckless fellows. And there's not much interpretation that needs to be done there, right? Sometimes in Judges, we're like, well, was that a good decision or a bad decision? Or was that a good moral character or a bad moral character? In this case, there's no interpretation to be done. We don't, we're not told who they are or what they do. We're just told about them that they are worthless and that they are reckless. And that is going to be true because they're hired to kill Israelites and they do so essentially without question. They'll do basically anything for the money. And so they go to Ophra, which is Gideon's house. They kill all 70 of Gideon's sons. And that 70 number you're gonna recognize refers to all of Gideon's sons, but there's two who aren't actually killed. Abimelech, who's the one doing the killing, and then also Jotham, who's the one who escapes the killing. So although it says here they killed 70 men, it's referring to all of Gideon's offspring, not necessarily that they killed 70 persons. And that's important because sometimes in biblical criticism, you can look here and say, well, earlier it said he only had 70 sons. Here he has two surviving sons, and it says that they killed 70 people. The Bible's inconsistent. It's not inconsistent. It's referring to broad categories of people involved. So that's something important because in the Old Testament, this kind of thing happens a lot where you have these representative numbers being thrown out. And so they kill all the 70 men, and it says that they kill them on one stone. And that, that's going to become an important thing, not this week, but next week. So hang on to that idea it becomes an important thing for the downfall of Abimelech. So they kill, So Abimelech puts all these men to death with one stone, um, and then the leaders of Shechem come together, and essentially they have this coronation ceremony where they put him in as their leader. And after this ceremony, you might think that the score has been settled, he clearly has power, and so now he just has to rule and reign in a, in a kind of just way. But no sooner is he instituted into authority than there's this kind of like pre-parable parable that's been told. Uh, it's like a proto-parable, or I've heard other people refer to it as a crypto-parable, because it has that kind of quality to it. It even draws on parable imagery, which is like the vine, and the, and the, the olive, and then the fig, and, and all of these things, and then the bramble, which is like the negative character in the parable. So it even has some of those qualities that you see in the New Testament as well. And the parable, I'm not gonna rehash the whole thing, but the parable essentially goes as follows. There's four potential candidates to lead over all these other trees in this story. And you have to play a game, which is one of these things is not like the other.
So if I name to you four things that are of, of like character, but clearly of different quality, you, you would be able to pick out which one is not like the others, right? So you've probably done this when you were taking the ACT or the SAT. You have to do word associations and figure out, well, which of these words doesn't match all the other words? And you circle the one that doesn't match and hopefully you get it right. Um, it's the same kind of interpretation strategy here, right? You could get lost in a world of trying to understand, well, what does the olive tree represent? What does the fig tree represent? What does the vine represent? But the point is, there's one of these trees that clearly doesn't match in quality or in character with any of the other trees. And so the olive tree is presented to rain and the olive tree rejects the ability to rain. The fig tree is presented with the opportunity to rule. The fig tree rejects the ability to rule. Then the vine is offered the ability to rule and rejects the ability to rule. And then you have the bramble bush, which is offered the ability to rule. And the bramble bush nobly accepts its ability to rule. It says in, in these terms, it says, um, if in good faith you are anointing me as king over you, then come and take refuge in my shade. But if not, let fire come out of the bramble and devour the, devour the cedars of Lebanon. Now, it's not hard to understand what's being said because the, the bramble's statement of leadership is kind of this fake acceptance of leadership. It's, uh, well, if, if I'm the option, I will, I will humbly accept your, your opportunity to lead. And that's kind of like what just happened in that coronation ceremony where they killed off all the other options and then they had a coronation ceremony to put him in as king. It was all just for show. And so, so is the, the answer here from the bramble bush. And so it becomes pretty clear who Jotham is talking about. He's referring most notably to Abimelech. Abimelech is the bramble in this case, clearly of lesser quality than any of the other options that they had and, and very eager to take that position of power. And this is a very indicative of bad leadership in the book of Judges. Someone who's not of the right kind of character, but who's eager and ambitious. And just because of their ambition, essentially they end up in a leadership position. And that happens still today all the time, where people who are unqualified, but eager, get the opportunity and they take it. And people assume that because they're in a leadership position or because someone has been put into a position of authority, that that instantly means they've passed all the requisite qualifications. And that's not always the case. And neither is it here in this book. In this case, um, the people of Israel make a terrible decision to elect uh, Abimelech as their leader. They do so thinking that it's in their own interest, and they do so wrongly because it's obviously not in their interest. And that becomes clear uh, later, and we'll see that more next week. So then, uh, to understand this parable even more fully, uh, you have to then see his explanation of the parable in verse 16 through 21, where he gives all these conditional statements. He says, first and foremost, if you acted in good faith and integrity when you made Abimelech king. That's the first conditional statement. Second one, and if you have dealt well with Jerubbabel and with his house and have done to him as his deeds deserved. So there's the second conditional statement. So first, he's giving essentially a blessing if they've acted in good faith and integrity and if they've dealt well with Gideon and his household. And then he says, and if you've acted in good faith and integrity with Jerubbabel and his sons to this day, that's verse 19, then rejoice in Abimelech and let him also rejoice in you. So those are all the conditional statements. What's that, those parts that I skipped over though is the explanation after the conditional statements tells us that they are in fact hypothetical, not real situations because he has this long run on sentence where he explains that they haven't done this. Because after that second if statement in verse 16, if you've dealt well with Gideon and with his house, verse 17, 
For my father fought for you and risked his life and delivered you from the hand of Midian. And you have risen up against my father's house this day and have killed his sons, 70 of them on one stone, and have made Abimelech, the son of his female servant, king over the leaders of Shechem because he is your relative. If then you have acted in good faith. So he's clearly explained that he doesn't think they've acted in good faith. And so verse 20 is what he's actually saying to them. He says, but if not, which he thinks that they've not met that criteria, and we as the reader would likely agree with that assessment, let fire come out from Abimelech and devour the leaders of Shechem and Beth Milo, and let fire come out of the leaders of Shechem and from Beth Milo and devour Abimelech. So his, his judgment on them is essentially a mutually assured destruction, that this relationship where they've submitted to him as their king would be bad for both them and for him that they would all essentially meet their end through this wicked partnership that they've entered into. And then he, he flees. And if I was the relative of Abimelech, I would also flee because he just killed all 70 of his brothers. And so I would, I would also leave town. And so w- with us only being in part one of the unfolding of these events, we're left to essentially push the, does this actually happen in the way it's predicted to happen? Uh, we're, we're left to kind of push that on to next week. So the, the overarching storyline of these verses is this question, which is, does God in his mercy uh, judge Abimelech and judge the men of Shechem for what they've done? Or does he let them get away with it and sow years and generations of corruption? That's the the big question. Does God let wickedness go unpunished? So that's the big question. That's going to be part two next week. But if you just look in at these verses, we can can ask ask some pretty interesting questions um, from the text. Namely, what is there for us to learn? people who stand thousands of years later from from these verses and this parable and and all of the things that unfold here. Well, the first thing to note is that Abimelech is clearly an unqualified leader. And what's interesting about his lack of qualification is that his argument for why he's qualified is an argument we also will often make of our leaders for why they are qualified. So he says, for example, I'm related to them and they buy into it and they say, hey, he's our brother. He'll, He'll do it for us. And that's a very low standard for someone leading you. But we do this not even in the public sphere. If you just look at the church, we will put people in in pulpits, people as elders in churches who will affirm the right kinds of things with their mouth, but not actually believe those things or practice those things on the ground. People who say, I believe in the authority of scripture. I believe scripture is inerrant. They say the right thing, but they don't actually, let's say, imbibe what it would mean to believe that thing. And so he here says, I am your relative, but he's not going to make decisions on the ground that are in keeping with that statement. He doesn't actually essentially live up to what he's claimed that he is. He's I'm your relative. And the assumption is I will act in your interest. And so he's, he's falling short of his, his claim, but they just buy into the claim. They take it right at face value. They ask no further questions and that's a problem for them. But we do this all the time in the church as well, where we buy into someone in leadership just by the claim that they make, not examining is that true of their actual on the ground practice. But we can go one step further back and we can ask the question, how did Israel end up in a position where they institute Abimelech as their new judge? How does that process unfold? And it's been unfolding slowly for nine chapters in Judges. It's it's kind of this ever-growing rot that's been present in the people of Israel. The first step in that process is the people of Israel abandon their commission into the promised land. So the first thing they do is the one thing God told them to do as they're entering into the promised land is they just, they stop doing it. And they stop doing it and they stopped doing it for so long that even as readers, we've stopped questioning why they're not doing it anymore. 
if you're if you're this deep in judges, you probably haven't asked the question for some time. Well, why aren't they, you know, in this time of prosperity, pressing in to subdue the promised land? Why aren't they doing that? We don't even ask the question because we're so used to, we're so complacent with the Israelites as they are. We think peace and them not abandoning God is like a gold standard for the Israelites. And we've accepted that as like an example of them really doing super well. And that's clearly not the case. It's this slow dry rot where we accept lower and lower standards of, oh, this is good for Israel. And then next time it's, oh, this is okay for Israel. And we just kind of continually become complacent, even with them as readers. And then the abandoning of that commission leads to them forgetting God. That's the very first thing that's said really in that introduction phrase in 33 through 35, um, is that Israel did not remember the Lord their God. Now, this does not mean that theologically they don't know who Yahweh is or that theologically they are not able to articulate that Yahweh is the one who delivered them, that he's the father of Abraham, that he was the God of Moses, that Moses was this great leader. What it means is not that they actually forgot God. It means essentially that they functionally forgot who God was, which means that even though they know all these things about God, that's not in any way affecting their on-the-ground decision-making. And this happens even in our lives as Christians as well, where we functionally believe things about God, but we don't allow that to actually affect our on-the-ground, day-to-day decision-making in our life. For example, we would say that we believe God is holy and he's righteous and he's just. But when we live out our lives on the ground, we functionally forget about that all the time. And we do unholy and wicked and unjust things and think that it shouldn't bother God. The same thing with his justice and his, his mercy. We think God is a merciful God, and yet we feel shame when we sin, and we don't want to go to God and confess our sins because we've functionally forgotten a truth about God. And we do this all the time. We also do this when it comes to how the church ought to be run. We functionally believe that God is good, and he has set up the church as his vehicle on earth to spread the gospel. And then we, but when we're living out, how do we run the church on the ground? We functionally forget that God has instituted his church. And instead we say, well, we should run it like a business and we should run it uh, with an open arms and we should, we should borrow from the, the secular world and the CEO model. And we should do this to, to run churches. But functionally, God gave us the way to run the church. He tells us in Titus, he tells us in first Timothy about the qualifications for leaders. He says, forget about someone being charismatic, forget about someone being a good communicator, get someone who's holy who loves God's word, and who can teach. Those are the standards. And you can, you can check those standards. Nowhere in there does it say we need someone who's charismatic or good with people or, uh, or a particularly good on his social media account. None of that stuff. And we functionally forget God, though, because when we run our churches, we, we, we put aside that God has run his church and instituted it. And instead, on the ground, we make decisions as if there is no God. We, we go about the Christian life as atheists. And so that's what the people of Israel have already done for many chapters now, is they functionally forget about God and then they go back onto Baal worship and they go back into picking leaders who seem to be at their own best interest. And that's how Israel ends up in this place. So there's many lessons to be learned even without us being able to take part in the overarching storyline of this chapter. So more on the, the overarching story next week, but for now I'll just close in prayer and then we can go into discussion. Dearly Father, uh, we are so thankful to you for your word. Lord, even though we are so far removed from the culture and the time and the place and uh, the happenings of these events, Lord, we pray that you would not allow that to um, separate us from the application of your word. Would your Holy Spirit press into our hearts and uh, help us to see with uh, with your eyes what is, what is here for us today that we can profit from. 
um, what, what is there for us to, to learn from, what is there for us to grow and to apply and to uh, strengthen and to encourage us, Lord. Would you give us your grace to, to grow uh, just one step closer to you, Lord, to be conformed to the image of your Son um, and to be people who uh, are not going to forget you, Lord. Um, we don't want to forget you um, theologically and in truth, but also uh, in our regular life as we live out our commission, Lord. Would we not forget you and um, abandon just basic truths about who you are and, and how good you are to us? Lord, we ask and we pray these things in your name. Amen.